2: I'd like to welcome everyone back to episode two of season four of criminology we're excited to get into this
0: episode we had a lot of people reach out to us after episode one and tell us how much information they took away from that episode and how interesting it all was and we thought that episode would be informative and in-depth and we're glad that people found it to be so
2: and this episode is going to pick up right where we left off last week and we have some more great guests who are going to offer some terrific insights for the cases this season. But before we get started, we have to thank our Patreon supporters. Stephanie Levandusky jumped out at our highest level. Alicia Kirkpatrick, Michelle Miller, Angela Rogers, Joe Doral, and Cat Steele. So Big shout out to all of the new supporters and big shout out to everyone that continues to support the show month after month. Really goes a long way towards helping Morph and I put out this podcast.
0: Yeah, we do appreciate your support. And we've been trying to throw out some goodies out there on the Patreon feed to, for you to listen to, whether it's interviews in their entirety, outtakes or stuff we couldn't get in the show. Or even fun stuff like the Q&A episode we just put out. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon and get access to some of those Patreon episodes, you can do so by going to patreon.com criminology.
2: All right, Morph, let's start off this episode by recapping where we left off in episode one. We heard from Paul Holes, who gave us some more great insight about how he used emerging technology To take down the Golden State Killer by dropping the killer's DNA profile into Match. Then we talked to Curtis Rogers from Match, and he filled us in on how Match worked. But with as much information as we got in that episode, there's still a lot more that we need to digest to really dive into and understand these cases that are coming up.
0: Great police work is just one step of that process, and GEDmatch may hold the answers that investigators need to crack some of these cases, but there's a crucial step in between, and that's the forensic genealogy work. The investigators in these cases aren't qualified to do that work, and they rely on the help of skilled researchers to complete that work. In the last episode, Paul Holes told us how Barbara Ray Venter connected some of the dots that helped him solve the Golden State Killer case. We've also seen how people like C.C. Moore, who is head of Parabon's Genetic Genealogy Unit, is achieving similar success.
2: One more person who's also been in the news often this year for her work on these kinds of cases is Colleen Fitzpatrick. And she has quite a resume for her work on decades-old cases, including the case of missing aviator Amelia Earhart. She's also an accomplished author. She joined us to talk about some of her work as it relates to using DNA in identifying people, whether it's a serial killer or an unidentified body. She also gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how she played a role in solving
0: some big cases recently. Colleen, thanks for joining us today on Criminology.
3: My pleasure, Mike. Glad Glad to hear from you.
0: If you can... Please give the listeners a little bit of a background about the work you do and what kind of experience you have in this field.
3: Well, uh, you know, Mike, I have a hard science background in physics, and I did a lot of work that involves, you know, a lot of data analysis, a lot of statistics, um, you know, a lot of, you know, handling a lot of, well, a lot of data. And so, uh, you know, dealing with the genetic genealogy cases that we have through the DNA DOE project and through Identifinders, um, it's been a natural for me to uh, become involved and be successful because, you know, I know how to look at data, I know how to analyze it, and I, I know how to tease out some meaning from that. So people ask me a lot, how did you get from science and physics into forensics? And that's the answer. They're actually closely related. It's how you you know work on a, a solving a problem and using the scientific method. And so um, that was sort of, you know, basically my transition there was not that difficult.
0: I know your name has been in some different news reports as of late, obviously, with all the new advances that are going on with law enforcement and genealogy and, and the science behind that. Um, how and when did you make that change going into this this kind of work uh, that you're doing now, the specialized kind of work?
3: Well, about 2005, um, you know, I was working. Uh, I had my own company with a partner. We were working for NASA in the Department of Defense designing high-resolution laser measurement and fiber optic measurement techniques. Uh, our last contract was designed to help Northrop Grumman, a large aerospace company. We had a subcontract with them to help design the next spacecraft to Jupiter. It was called the Jupiter Icy Moon Orbiter contract uh, spacecraft. Um, and our team, we had a contract to produce a con- help them produce a conceptual design. And there was gonna be a down select because there were other companies competing for the actual construction phase. And our team won, which meant really a big deal for our company as a subcontractor. But um, unfortunately, right after that, the contract was withdrawn because, uh, you know, the the Bush administration wanted to go to the moon as a way station to Mars. And, you know, regardless of that decision and why it was made, it meant, you know, our big contract went away. So at that time, my partner and I realized that it wasn't an era for small businesses. You know, it was there was another um, you know plan agenda, you know, for larger companies and for other priorities. So we decided to close the company and try and do something else. And at the time, I had my first book, Forensic Genealogy, done. And the unfortunately, the publisher canceled the contract because it had taken me three years to write it. So with the book done my partner suggested we just do it on our own that at that time self-publishing was not what it means today where you upload to the internet and get an e-book or something um we actually opened it opened our own publishing company and we researched the printers the paper the you know ink how much it cost you know even this format of the book how many words on the page you know how to and uh, we went through it again and edited it very well. We're both very good writers. And so we managed to do this book, and we we decided to use forensic genealogy sort of as a transition to whatever we did next, you know, thinking it would be more laser work or more optics work, um, maybe consulting in that area. But it turned out the forensic genealogy uh, idea took off and started a revolution in genealogy. So that's that's how we got started in that
0: and as of late you've had some really good success uh you've been you know contracted to do a lot of projects involving identifying people what are some of the the high profile cases that you've uh, worked on in recent times
3: well you know uh that's a good question you know when i in 2005 okay this developed outside the hobby arena and i i have done some really good work starting at the beginning from Um, you know, some of the cases I'm well-known for, The Hand in the Snow, Titanic, Baby, Amelia Earhart, Abraham Lincoln, you know, that kind of thing, Holocaust work. But about 2011, I started working cold cases with the police. And at that time, the only ability to do that using genetic genealogy was with Y-DNA. So after, you know, doing a few cases, I finally... Con- connected with the Phoenix uh, Police Department and I wound up solving the Phoenix Canal murders. That was my first big cold case. Um, I actually solved it in 2014 but the agency asked me to keep quiet about it because you can imagine this was the first case solved with genetic genealogy and nobody knew what to do about it. You know, what what it meant. Um, and I used only public data. You know, I didn't you know log into any secret databases. I just knew how to harvest that data from the internet and use it to compare their Y-DNA profile to the killers and come up with a name with that. So I, they, they finally arrested Brian Patrick Miller. I had given them the name Miller as the last name of the killer, as probable last name of the killer, and that narrowed their list of suspects from 2000 to five. And of those five, there was just one that made any sense, and that was the man that's now going to be tried for those murders because, of course, they followed it up with you know, getting a DNA sample from him and getting a CODIS match. So it wasn't just I told them something and they went out and arrested him. They, they had a lot of police work to do after I them that, gave them that name. Um, so I provided the, the final clue that, allowed, that led to the arrest. Now, more recently, fast forward, I've been involved in many cases since then, but uh, about earlier this year, there was uh, an arrest in a case from 1984 in Aurora, Colorado. In that case, there was um, a series of break-ins, robberies, murders, rapes um, of four residences in the Aurora, Colorado area. It's called the Bennett case because one of the break-ins was with the Bennett family. Um, the four members of the family, mom, dad, and the two girls, were bludgeoned and raped and stabbed with only one survivor, which was the youngest daughter, who I think was four years old. Her face was smashed in, but she survived. So, you know, fast forward. Uh, you know, they hired me a couple of years ago to look at the case, and I came up with the name Ewing. And this was interesting because it was probably the best match I had ever found. I found 75 matches in the genetic genealogy databases to men with the name Ewing to their profile of the unknown that they gave me. And this included exact matches, one step, two step. It was as if this was a huge old family of Ewing's and he fit right in. Okay, so, you know, barring the possibility he was adopted or you know he had a name change we call a misattributed paternity or something um his name was ewing the authorities in, you know and i with my assistance we looked at the the area you know that type of thing and nothing came of it and um finally two about two months ago they arrested alexander christopher ewing for the murder and the the story was that once he had committed these break-ins in aurora he moved to phoenix and he did it again but he got caught and he went into prison and my understanding is that the the prison he was in in arizona probably was not adequate for him not adequate security okay let me go back and explain that when all the original crimes happened in 84 85 that was before codis was enacted so it, you know, these anybody who was already in prison in the early 90s when CODIS was beginning to be used was not tested for CODIS. So the prison, a lot of the prison population has never been tested. So he was being transported to Nevada and to a, a more secure prison. And he was, he got away, but he was recaptured. And then the state of Nevada recently has been going back to retest the prison population having gotten CODIS hits off of inmates who were already in prison when CODIS was enacted. CODIS was enacted, and theoretically, everybody in prison and going into prison should have been tested, but the funding necessary to test everybody already in prison was not there, so the decision was made to just test people going into prison. And that's why Mr. Ewing went under the radar for so long, Finally, the state of Nevada realized what was going on and started to test the prisoners they already had in prison. And that's when he came up as a CODIS match to the Aurora case, the the Bennett murders in, in the Bennett case in Aurora, Colorado. That's a long way around of saying that that was one of my success stories, although you may not hear my name associated with it, because once this was done, you know, there's other issues that are being addressed in the media about test, retesting or testing the prison populations um, that have not been tested. Um, you know, the, the now the casework that has to be done to put Mr. Ewing in the right time and right place, you know, the time uh, timeline and stuff, there's a lot of work that has to be done to prove out the case. So that all being said, that's more in the news than the fact I supplied the name two years ago.
0: And just to follow up on that, I had heard what you just said, that it there was a match in CODIS, but they didn't really give you much credit that I saw. Um, w- when you gave them this name, first off, did they check him out, or did you just give them the last name and they didn't you know, connect it to him right away?
3: Well, that, they didn't even know anything about him. I gave them the last name, and we looked at Ewing's that were readily available. You know, Ewing's that lived in Aurora at that time, uh, you know, the police probably looked up old addresses, you know, you know, traced people. But Mr. Christopher Ewing, you know, was nowhere on the radar screen. You know, he was already in prison in Nevada. So they didn't think to go and look in the prisons. you know, for somebody who was already in prison. They were, you know, looking at people not in prison. They thought he may have died. You know, they didn't know.
0: That's fascinating, and it's. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I wasn't aware of. Um, so, what difference is there, if any, between trying to ID somebody like Nichols/Chandler or the Aurora Hammer Killer um, or a body, a John Doe, a Jane Doe, who's found someplace that needs to be identified? Is there any difference on your end approaching it and investigating it to come to a conclusion?
3: The difference between, say, let me say a John Doe, uh, and which would include Mr. Chandler, because he was a John Doe, um, and a serial killer, it's not so much on our end, what we do and how we work. It's more likely on the family's end, because you're, you're really walking into or you're helping with a situ- two different situations. In one case, let's say you have a serial killer case, you're working with some police agency, Um, and you have, you know, a bunch of victims, a bunch of families, Um, it's in the family's best interest to keep that case in the news, to keep the authorities on track, to let people know it hasn't been solved yet. And when you do the genealogy work, let's say you came up with somebody named John Smith that solved it. Um, You know, we always go to the agency, we let the agency handle it, but the family is going to be more than relieved. You know, the family is going to, be uh you know grateful, a lot of them you know, go on the news to say, we're just so relieved. We know who my our daughter's killer is, and we hope to bring him the justice. And but on the other hand, when you uh, when it's a John or Jane Doe and you identify him, the family that the agency is going to contact has no idea that you're getting ready to contact them. You know they they have wondered what happened to their family member for years. And they thought everybody forgot, you know, there's a few cases say that are very interesting and the name, orange socks, lavender doe, buckskin girl. But for the most part, you know, the the family hasn't probably heard too much. There hasn't been too much movement on the case. And when the authorities, you know, contact them, it's a surprise. And of course, they're, they're in a different position You know, it's hard, it's easy to say, hey, we found your daughter's killer. It's hard to say, "Uh, we found your daughter, she was strangled 37 years ago. That's a shock. You know, or your son hung himself in a closet in a hotel 17 years ago. That's a shock. And those people are, you know, have been hoping their family member would come home. You know, they don't expect the news they died so long ago and they've been unidentified. And those people, you know, need time. They need space. They're not on the news. They don't want to necessarily go in front of the camera and say, hey, I'm so glad they, you know, identified my daughter. She was laying in a ditch for 37 years ago. They don't, you know, they need time to cope. And so we have to, you know, doing the two types of cases, you have to be cognizant not of what you're doing, but what you're going to find on the other end.
0: You, I guess you have to somewhat have a feeling of accomplishment or uh, happiness for helping family members uh, get news, even if it's painful news, you get some kind of good feeling from that, I assume.
3: Well, when we solve a case, it's nothing like it. I mean, it's Miller time, you know, to quote, <laughs> uh, you know, Margaret and I, when we did Chandler that night, I mean, in all of our volunteers, the whole group was on fire You know, we were just so high-fiving each other over the Internet, on the phone. Um, There's really nothing like really making it work and bringing satisfaction or bringing information to the family. And I don't want to use the word closure. We use it on our end because we would close a case. But we don't want to use it on the other end because, like Buckskin Girl's mother told us, there is no closure. You know, her daughter is never coming back. There's only information, there's only knowledge of what happened that she can now go on with her life and cope with. You know, so there is accomplishment. There's also a sense of responsibility to continue to help, to be available as much as we can, to navigate the next step. You know, when the families have to do whatever legalities they have to take care of now that they know the truth
0: as these new cases are being solved and more and more likely to be solved, and this seems to be a valuable field that you find yourself in, uh, is there room for more people to come into that field? Is it, you know, because I've seen on social media people that are like, wow, I really, it, that, how interesting, how great a job that sounds like. Is, is there room for other people to come into the, that forensic genealogy field and, and try and help solve these crimes? And, and how do they go about getting into that field?
3: Um I would say that there's plenty room there's plenty of cases there's plenty to do now, in that regard, I want to just tell the audience that to do this, you have to have certain skills. Of course, you have to have genetic genealogy experience you've got to know you have to have worked on say adoption cases or you know your own genealogy. you have to have some experience behind you, but don't think that that's enough necessarily you you have to also know how to deal with law enforcement you have to know how you have to be very knowledgeable on how to approach people about it we we don't call anybody okay necessarily unless we really have to with the permission of the agency but you've got to have people skills you've got to have experience talking to people about sensitive subjects Um, you've got to have experience working with law enforcement So I'm going to say to the audience, yes, there's plenty of room, but be very judicious about whether you want to hang your shingle out and do it on your own, Um, because it's a very volatile time. Law enforcement is just learning the ropes. They're learning what's going on. And, you know, we need to have the experienced people speak with them and participate with them and, you know, work with them rather than a genealogist seeing an opportunity for you know to earn money or to open their own company doing this um you know one i until recently and even recently i'm one of the very i would say not so many genealogists can the, the police will return their calls or will uh trust them with sensitive information you know i think i'm one of those people because i've worked with them for so long and I have the reputation that I'll just be quiet, keep my mouth shut and work with them as they want. And I'm not out for publicity to make tons of money or to make a name for myself. I'm just out to do good work and help. And I'm well known for that.
0: And how long is it typically a turnaround time if law enforcement gives you a case today and says, I need your help with this? Is there an average time until you can you know, comfortably say, I think I know the answer here?
3: Um, I, you know, the answer, I get asked that every single day. And the answer is anywhere from four hours until never. Um, and I don't want to say never, never, but four hours to a very long time. We have Buckskin Girl got solved with four hour clock hours. We had probably Margaret, I, and let's say another genealogist. It was like one, one to four in the morning, you know? So it was like maybe 10 to 15 man hours did that with Margaret and I, maybe a genealogist or two online and offline. Um, Chandler took 3000 hours over several months. And we have two cases that we're still working on. We're actually making progress. Finally, one one, the problem was the DNA was contaminated with bacteria, so that meant we had a lot less to work with than we anticipated. Um, the other one uh, comes from West Virginia, uh, Bell in the Well, and her problem is she's so uh, from an area that's so intermarried that it's hard to untangle the genealogy from you know who's who, who's related to whom. Um, And we also found that that's a strike against finding one parent, but the strike against the other parent probably is that the other parent probably came from Germany or continental Europe. And there aren't that many people in the database, relatively speaking, that are from those areas. And this particular person, whoever the parent is, really doesn't have any close matches. So we're at a disadvantage on both sides of the family
0: and at any given time how many different cases are you working on or is there a limit to the amount of cases that you can you can be working on at once
3: well we're ramping up we have 40 45 volunteers we have a waiting list about twice that long and we're ramping up and as we we have probably 20 cases or two dozen cases anywhere from you know very mature and almost solved all the way to just coming in the pipeline like in the next couple of days so you know it's a you know it's a it's not just we're working and we're not working we're working or we're pu- pulling them into the system or so um, we think we could handle a lot more and as I said as we grow we don't want to grow too fast we don't want to have too many volunteers which means everybody's working on that next new case uh, and we don't want to have too few which means some languish in the corner so as we get more cases we're going to be adding more people.
0: Well, if your past work and, you know, history of accomplishment is anything, you'll probably have plenty of work coming your way, and hopefully you solve a lot of it, and, you know, I want to wish you luck with that.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. The Bureau of Justice Statistics Survey of 2007 said there were 40,000 unidentified bodies in various, you know, custody of various agencies and medical examiner's office. Sometimes some people regard that as a vast underestimate. Some are okay with it, but either way, the um the, amount, the number in 2018 is so much higher and we're out to identify all of them.
0: And if somebody out there listening has a need for your services or just wants to learn more about what it is you do, where can they find you at?
3: Well, I'm at Identifinders International is my company. My blog is identifinders.wordpress.com. My website is www.identifinders.com, and that would pertain to more criminal cases or, you know, where I could apply Y-DNA if there was no other DNA still available. Um, and, you know, other cases, you know, some heavy adoption cases or, you know, Holocaust, I do a lot of Holocaust work. As far as DNA Doe, you can go to project.org. Um, and you know, there's a contact us there. We'd love, we survive on donations. So we'd love it if people would surf in and donate to their favorite cases or just to our general fund to help us keep going. We're totally nonprofit. We do not draw any salaries. No people make any money off of this. Any administrative fees we earn go to, you know, all of our expenses to support our website, our attorney, you know, our CPA and that kind of thing. Um, so go to the and if you'd like to suggest a case, we have of course tons that have been suggested. One thing we don't do: if somebody writes in says, "Could you do this case from Alabama?" We don't go and contact the agency on the suggestion of a write-in. We we suggest that the agency contact us and we'll consider it. Uh, we don't encourage genealogists to call their agencies to suggest cases, but. You know, I guess email doesn't hurt or whatever, but mainly we get our cases when the agency comes to us, not vice versa.
0: And are you on social media at all, Facebook or Twitter? Do you have any pages there?
3: Yes, we are on social media. We have a Facebook page. um, Search on DNA Doe Project, and you'll find us.
0: Awesome, and we'll be sure to link to some of your uh, information on our site. Uh, or on social media so people can find you as well. I appreciate the information. You've been a, a wealth of knowledge, and you're really helping us to understand the stuff we're talking about this season on criminology. So Great, uh, great. Thanks for coming on.
3: Yeah, thanks, Mike, and, you know, uh, we'll talk soon.
0: Colleen mentioned having a hand in identifying the Aurora Hammer Killer, Alexander Christopher Ewing, but she hasn't really gotten a lot of credit for that because ultimately... DNA on file in CODIS matched Ewing. But that was such a well-known and horrific case. So for her to play a role in that is just amazing.
2: So in that interview, you heard Morph ask Colleen about Robert Ivan Nichols, a.k.a. Joseph Newton Chandler III. And that's because Colleen also worked on that case, helped to break it. And this is one of the cases that we're going to cover Later on this season, you'll hear a lot more detailed information from Colleen in that episode about the success that she had with working the Nicholas slash Chandler case, which is really fascinating.
0: And you heard Colleen allude to a uh, mention of somebody taking their life in a hotel while using a fake identity, and that was the case of Lyle Stevick, which she also had a hand in solving. And, of course, they haven't released his true identity, but she did accurately figure out who he actually was. And I know a lot of listeners out there, from what she mentioned, probably would figure that was Lyle Stevic she was talking about.
2: So far this season, we've talked about Match. We've talked about the genealogy used to identify some of these people. But one final thing we need to jump into is the use of Parabon NanoLabs in assisting law enforcement over the years, and they've been around for a while. The work that they have done and continue to do is impressive. And Parabon is another one of those names that we see time and time again in relation to some of these solved cases. I think many people may be familiar with Parabon, especially in relation to the groundbreaking work they've done in creating composites of what a person may look like
0: based on their DNA. Parabon did play a major role in many of the cases that we've seen solved this year, and some of those cases we'll be covering this season. Steve Armantrout, who's the CEO of Parabon NanoLabs, joined us to give us an in-depth understanding of just who Parabon is and what they do. With us today is Steve Armantrout. He's with Parabon. Thank you for being with us, Steve. Of course. If you can, just introduce yourself to the audience about the work you've done with Parabon and your background.
1: So I'm the CEO here. Uh, Parabon Nano Labs was founded in 2008. This is the area of a company called Parabon Computation that I've ran for a long time. And Parabon Nanolabs is a, a DNA technology company. We both build things out of DNA and we analyze DNA. And so in for the forensics world, um, we, we analyze crime scene d- DNA in a different way than traditional
0: methods. And when you first came online, did you anticipate this was the work you were going to be doing? A lot of it specifically centered around law enforcement? Absolutely not.
1: We, we first started this part of the business doing DNA nanotechnology. And it was only thanks to a government solicitation looking for something called DNA phenotyping that we got into the business. The company has a long history of working on difficult computational problems. And in 2011, the Department of Defense issued a solicitation looking for tools that can predict appearance from DNA. And the way it was couched, it was sort of like they were looking for a lab kit. But when we looked at the problem, it was really a computational problem. Can one reverse engineer the human genome to figure out what genes are responsible for eye color, hair color, and so on? So we thought we had a unique angle on this problem. We responded to that solicitation with a proposal, and of all the companies that submitted, we got the award. That was a phase one project. The goal was to establish the feasibility, answer the question, can you find the genes or the SNPs, as we say in the business, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, the changes in the DNA that are responsible for various traits. And we were successful in that endeavor. That led to a phase two project. And what evolved over the course of about a four-year period of time was a technology that's now called snapshot DNA phenotyping. And snapshot DNA analysis looks at the DNA differently than traditional forensic analysis. The forensic tools with DNA to date are fabulous for what they do, but they treat the DNA like a fingerprint, like a biometric, like an iris scan. Uh, And so they're very good for that identical matching, identity matching, but they really don't take advantage of all the genetic information that's available in DNA. So with Snapshot, we use different instrumentation and we look at that genetic component And over the course of the history of that snapshot development project, we developed models, predictive models for predicting eye color, hair color, skin color, freckling, face shape, and ancestry. And in 2015, we began offering that to law enforcement as a service offering.
0: And I think that's when a lot of people first heard about the work you were doing with these, these almost composites that you were producing based on on what the DNA was telling you. And that seemed like a revolutionary phase in, in DNA work. Uh, what were the limitations of, of working with those, uh, you know, as far as accuracy and dependability?
1: When we first got into it, there was an open question about whether you could even analyze forensic grade samples with the instruments that we use. We use what are called SNP microarray sequencers. And the SNP microarrays typically require a lot of DNA, more than you find in a typical crime scene sample. Uh, So we and others analyzed whether that could work. Uh, Once we demonstrated the instruments were indeed sensitive down to levels as little as one nanogram, an extraordinarily small amount of DNA. Then the next question was, can you build models that are predictive? And for that purpose, we collected DNA and phenotype, i.e. trait information, on thousands of people. And using them as references, we developed what are called now AI, but machine learning algorithms, to make predictions based on these examples. Uh, the, the, the core idea there is if you have enough examples of DNA and blue-eyed people and DNA of brown-eyed people, maybe you can find genes that turn on or off depending on whether it's brown or blue and i'm oversimplifying but that's the basic idea so as part of this process we we keep track of how well the models predict on our known samples so before we ever went to market we had very good data on the accuracy of the various models because we build them in a fashion that allows us to test on a part of our sample. It's kind of a clever idea. Briefly stated, it's called cross-validation, but you can imagine taking one of your samples out that you know about. You know the eye color of this person, and I'm using eye color because it's a simple phenotype to talk about. You know the eye color of this person, but you treat their data as an unknown. You don't let your models see that. And so you train up your models as though you never had that sample, and then you can analyze that sample with the models you built and see how well it performs, and you can record that. Then you can put that sample back in your data set, take another sample out, do the whole process again, and over time you, you create a log of just how well the model performs. And what we found through our delight is that the models are very accurate, and we actually report our confidence in those predictions along with all the reports that we produce.
0: And are you able to give like a percentage of how accurate you believe? these composites to be
1: so for the various pigmentation traits we provide these confidence statements and you know for eye color hair color those kind of things we're in the you know 90 percent confidence range Uh, we've done a lot of blind evaluations and so forth where that seems to be the case you know every every so often we'll we'll say you know green eyes or hazel make those kind of subtle mistakes but overall those models are very strong Face morphology is more difficult to measure, but in the end, um, you know, in our database, we're able to discriminate three out of four faces just using face morphology alone. So that gives you some indication that these are pretty strong. And in the end, what we're producing is really a likeness of someone. And that's proving to be useful for law enforcement. You know, from a law enforcement perspective, their primary goal starting off is just to exclude who can they de-emphasize in an investigation? Uh, and so we don't claim that the composites are photo IDs. In fact, um, we have a briefing with our detectives on each case, and we underscore the point that you know this, this composite is intended to be a likeness of the person whose DNA it came from, not a photo ID. And so they use these markers, um, these phenotypes, in their investigation to narrow a suspect list or to jog someone's memory. And in that capacity, they're, they're proving very effective.
0: As far as technology goes, are these still on the newer side of of what's evolving in, in DNA technology or these, is there something new on the horizon that might, you know, take the place of these composites?
1: This is very much the cutting edge of what's going on in uh, DNA forensics today. There's, you know, phenotyping, which has been around for a couple of years now, um, we introduced uh, a test for kinship inference. So, this is the ability to take two DNA samples, and, and these are arbitrary unknown samples, and say with high confidence the degree of relatedness between them, if any. Uh, that was part of a Department of Defense contract where it's ongoing, where we assist them uh, with the identification of war dead. You can imagine in a past conflict say even back to world war ii there may not be a next of kin and so you're not able to use those traditional dna tests um, whereas this test can go out to you know second cousins, cousins once removed with high accuracy and then most recently we've been using something called genetic genealogy and that's what has made the news recently cc moore is a um, well-known genetic genealogist joined our staff in May, and that's using the DNA along with a, a public genetic genealogy database called GEDmatch to try to come up with relative, genetic relatives of an unknown DNA sample, and that's proving to be highly effective. In fact, since May, Parabon has been part of investigations um, that have resulted in a positive DNA match 11 times now. And some of these cases are over 35 years old.
0: And congratulations, because I know just in the last day or two, there's been a couple more that you guys have hit on. And I know you can't necessarily speak about some of the cases that you are working on for law enforcement. But in general, how many cases do you have as far as a caseload of, of cases that law enforcement is asking you to review?
1: You know, there's various stages in our pipeline, but... Um, If you go end-to-end now, we're probably looking at 50 to 75 active cases uh, and more coming in every day. This technology has marked a a real turning point in the history of DNA forensics, and and the law enforcement community is excited
0: about it. And do you limit yourself on on how many cases you want to work on or you can work on at one time?
1: We're we're growing to match the demand. We brought on a number of genetic genealogists um, as the Case load has ramped up, and so it's just a matter of managing that growth.
0: And what's the process from you know if you can give me a brief overview from law enforcement contacting you saying we have this DNA from this offender, um, or in, in another instance, you know we've got an unidentified victim that we found out in the woods. We don't know who it is. From getting that DNA, however, they're giving it to you. What's the process? The turnaround time on on from the start to the finish when you have a name?
1: So the, the process, many steps, I'll summarize them briefly. First, there's this just a screening process. In other words, we can't accept just any case. There's got to be DNA, and there's got to be sufficient quantity, and it has to be of sufficient quality. So we have screening forms that the DNA analyst for a particular case will fill out, uh, and then our team can evaluate those cases and will either – you know, accept a case or turn around and say, "hmm, you know, this, this particular sample is high risk. Uh, can you get another extract? Is there other evidence that you can test and so on? Uh, and in some cases, you know we just have to say, no, we can't take this case because this is the last of their evidence, and the DNA they have isn't, isn't sufficient. But once we've accepted a case, then we can accept the sample. We'll have that sample shipped to one of our genotyping labs. They'll run it through the instruments. And what comes out the other side is a big text file. You can think of it as a a spreadsheet with a million rows. And these are the alleles, the genotype calls, uh, for the various SNP markers. So with that genetic information, we then start applying our tools. We do a number of things. We'll we'll do a genetic genealogy screening. So that involves uploading the file to GEDmatch and recording the top matches and how much DNA is shared. you know, Because if, if we don't get matches that are sufficiently close, we really can't do genetic genealogy. So that's sort of stage one. Uh, additionally, we'll do basic phenotyping. So we'll run it through models that predict ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, just the basics. Because it turns out those tools are helpful when our genetic genealogists go to do their work And then if the police want to proceed, if we've gotten good enough matches to warrant a a deep investigation, they'll give us approval and our genetic genealogy team will then go off and begin doing their detective work. And quite frankly, that's what it is. They're using DNA sharing information that comes from GEDmatch to identify matches. Then they do genealogy work. They've got to build backward into the family trees to find the most recent common ancestors of the unknown in a match. If we're lucky, we get matches in different parts of the overall family tree, so you can begin to triangulate trees from one family to another. Uh, And ultimately, you're looking for that marriage that led to, you know, an unknown. So that work, you know, very labor-intensive. We have some of the best genetic genealogists in the world. Uh, and they will take our phenotype information. Uh, sometimes we'll do targeted kinship testing, maybe a volunteer in the family uh, who will give a buckle swab. Uh, and with that, we can either include or exclude large branches of the tree. But at the end of this process, we'll provide a report to police that gives them, uh, you know, in, in the best case, here's an individual's name. It might be a family And in really hard cases, it may be, you know, here's a list of surnames that you should be looking for uh, in your suspect list. Uh, And here are the most recent common ancestors, Uh, but there may be lots of descendants. So at that point, there may be a collaboration that goes on where the police have to do a lot of good police work and they'll come back to us. Here's what we found. Here's a sample we want to have tested Uh, and together we'll work on the case and what we're what we're seeing is these kind of leads are providing police with uh, great starting points for these investigations and and they're, and they're finding positive DNA matches you know with increasing frequency.
0: So the timelines that it takes the lengths of time it takes to work on some of these cases can vary from one case to the other?
1: Sure it all depends on the samples depends on how many matches one gets how close they are Uh, and you know, if we get lucky and we have close matches, we can turn them around in a matter of a couple of days. Uh, And then a more typical turnaround is 45 to 60 days.
0: And what do you see next is the future or would you predict is the future for Parabon and the next phase of work that you'll be doing?
1: Well, we're, we're introducing a new software suite called Parabon FX that we're excited about. It's really a collection of algorithms to analyze next-gen sequencing data. So even though we're doing genetics work on samples today, it's using a technology, as I described earlier, called SNP microarrays. Next-gen sequencing uh, is a different way to analyze DNA. And it's not going to replace SNP microarrays, but at the same time, it's applicable to tougher samples. Uh, it's a little better for analyzing mixtures. This is where you have you know, maybe multiple people have handled a gun, and you want to be able to tease out those profiles. So next-gen sequencing is a tool that um, you're going to see being used more and more in forensics, and, and we're on top of that. This was a DOD-funded effort uh, that resulted in a platform that in fact, next week at the ISHII conference, we'll be announcing it.
0: And it seems like as if the public is generally supportive of all the work you're doing and other agencies, you know, similar to you doing these, this work that's catching a lot of these bad guys that we're seeing in the news. But there's also people that have privacy concerns or concerns about errors or mis- misuse, mishandling perhaps at the, the laboratory level. What can you say to alleviate any of those concerns?
1: Well, the first thing I would point out is that you know, we're providing law enforcement with leads. And by definition, any case that we work on, they're going to have DNA on hand. So at the end of an investigation, they're ultimately going to use traditional DNA matching technologies to prove that a suspect is, in fact, a match. Um, so that's just an important fact to understand. Our, our tools are not going to be used for that final claim that you know this is the match to the dna because there are existing tools and protocols in place with respect to privacy you know i think right after the announcement of the golden state killer case there were some privacy concerns raised but as folks really began to look closely at the actual practice of forensic genetic genealogy you begin to realize that the the practice isn't imposing on anyone's privacy. You know, we're using GEDmatch, which has, as part of its terms and service, it states that, you know, law enforcement may use this website. So if you're a GEDmatch user, you have the option of making your kit private. So you can still use the tools. uh, It's just no one can see your data. So you have complete control over that. And moreover, the data on GEDmatch um, is really not very sensitive data. It's not raw genetic content. Jedmatch simply calculates the amount of DNA sharing uh, between other people in the database and and your file. So, when when people really begin to begin to examine the actual use of the tools, you realize that no one's privacy is being violated.
0: And I think that alleviates a lot of a lot of concerns for a lot of people. But overwhelmingly, I think that people are supportive and and very positive about what you're doing and and what law enforcement is doing with the dna
1: we we've certainly um seen that uh it's it's quite moving to to get responses from the families and from people in the communities where these crimes have been committed uh, thanking us for our work so at least from our perspective the response has been positive
0: so going forward obviously you've done a lot of good work and you continue to do a lot of good work. What are the chances one day that Parabon as a business could sell its work or the business itself to a private company, Ancestry.com for example, and then that company would turn around and reverse the work you're doing now or no longer willingly assist law enforcement?
1: That seems pretty unlikely. I mean, particularly the snapshot brand and the division of people that support this process, we wouldn't be very attractive to a suitor as anything other than a forensics business. Uh, So that seems unlikely. Moreover, you know, other people are beginning to uh, pursue these technologies too. So um, I I think that risk is pretty small.
0: Well, I want to wish you continued success because so far you guys have proven to, to do outstanding work. And I think as the weeks go along and we see more arrest and the name Parabon popping up, uh, it's just a, a real good positive thing you guys are doing. So more power to you and good luck moving forward.
1: Well, thank you so much. Real pleasure to be on your show.
0: I appreciate you coming on, Steve.
1: That was some great
2: information that Steve shared with us. And we can't thank him enough. I think when
0: we combine everything we know about Parabon with what Colleen Fitzpatrick shared with us, as well as the insights from Curtis Rogers from Jedmatch and Paul Holes, we really get a much clearer picture of how the process works from beginning to end, whether DNA is being used to help ID the family tree of a serial killer or an unidentified body.
2: So now that we're armed with all of this information and have a better understanding of how these processes work together, I think that we can dive into one of the cases solved in 2018 using these tools. And that's the case of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Cullenborg, who were murdered in the state of Washington in 1987. But that dive into that case will come on the next episode of criminology. If you like the show, please take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating, make sure you tell your friends about it. All of that goes a long way towards helping other people find the show.
0: And if you'd like to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. Or by joining our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast discussion and fans all right everyone get geared up
2: for next week full-blown in-depth episode on one of these cold cases that was solved with the use of the technology that we've talked about in these first two episodes